cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and as usual, very, very, very excited to be with you over the next hour. Joined in studio by the prodigal son who has returned. Greg Nicholson, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I can't, I should warn you though that I'm not, I don't know how much value I'll add today. I'm here just to find out what's going in the news because I've been off for a, a few days. But you've got the Movember mustache going, so if nothing else, you're, you're bringing a, I don't know. Yeah, for my sins, then I had to come in here. <laughs> We're just punishing yourself. It's like, I'm just going to come in with, with the, with the It stuff. actually isn't a Movember mustache, despite what everyone thinks. I was just too lazy while shaving the beard this morning. Okay. So I just left, I got to the mustache and I was just like, you know what? Let me just tackle this another day. You know what? I'm impressed. I'll take some pictures and tweet for the people you know, on Twitter who want to get in on this action. You don't want to miss this, trust me. It's actually surprising how often our podcast focuses on male grooming. I remember when Simon is in here, we're talking about his beard. I think I have a, a low-key obsession with facial hair because mine is so scant. And we've probably already passed the, a normal acceptable time we can discuss facial hair on a news podcast. So let's let's delve into that. I guess is the first topic of the day. <laughs> Let's get into it. First thing, something that was on the Daily Maverick, um, I think last week, late last week, about social grants and the provider on, on, on social grants. Um, and this is massive. So we're talking 17 million people all around the country who are recipients of some kind of social grant. Um, so we're talking about the disabled, the elderly, and lots of people who are living in poverty or, or at the poverty line and really, really need the social grants to, to get through the month. So this is 10 billion rand a month that's being paid out. Um, and the, the service provider for this is being changed, is being switched over. And there's a lot of questions as to whether with the new provider, who's the South African Social Security Agency, is actually ready and prepared um, to execute what is really a massive, massive task. Um, to chat to us about this, we have on the line from Cape Town, Marianne Tam, to speak to us. Marianne, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, wonderful. So Marianne, just to jump in, just my first question is, why is the distribution of these grants changing ownership? Why do we need to change the distributor of, of social grants at all? Okay, well, in, in 2013, the Constitutional Court ruled that a tender awarded to Cash, uh, cash Pay Master Services, CPS, and the subsidiary or uh, net one that owns CPS, was uh, irregularly and unlawfully uh, tendered. And, um, and that it, that it had to be uh, reopened to tender, because that was, I mean, it was challenged by AllPay. I think it was doing it um, before CPS uh, managed to get that particular tender. Um, Part of the agreement was that uh, SASA then wanted to do the in-house. They wanted to be able to distribute these grants uh, by itself. But the agency doesn't necessarily have the capacity to do this. Uh, but there was, a prop- there was a promise by the Department of Social Development that it would phase this in and it would take sort of seven steps in working towards finally integrating the system in-house by the 1st of April 2017, hmm. which is when the SASA cards that are issued, they master cards, and they under underscored by Grinrod Bank, which is when they all expire. Um, it is now six months away from the expiry date of this particular uh, It's been rolled over once before because the department was unable to, I'm not quite sure what, what the story was in terms of not being able to find a, a new provider or a new system. Uh, and so cash pay master services are either going to continue this this uh, particular tender again, which is illegal, and they're going to charge us for it, or charge the taxpayers, charge, charge government for it. But over and above all of that, the most worrying thing is what happens on the 1st of April mm. if all of these cards that belong to 17 million people worth 10 billion rand a month 
suddenly don't function. We have a major catastrophe looming. The problem is, uh, SASA and the department have not come to the committee meeting to Parliament. They haven't presented a plan. When they've been asked to do so, they went off to a conference in Panama. I believe it was an important conference. So those, these are the key underlying issues around uh, this particular matter. Sort of like we don't really know uh, if SASA will be ready to take over and what is going to happen on the 31st of March and the 1st of April. Now, you've already mentioned um, sort of the lack of communication. Could you just talk us through what's the, what's the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Social Development that's supposed to be giving oversight over this process? What are the things they're asking for and, and they're right. not getting from, from SASA, who's supposed to take over these grants? What's well, the information that's not being provided? All right. Well, SASA presented its annual general report about um, two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the committee members were quite alarmed to find that in that report there was only one paragraph dedicated to this massive new undertaking. And then began to say, well, will you please come and present and tell us, show us some work teams, show us the stakeholders, show us how you are down the line so that we can be informed of this. Sasa then promised they would do that. Uh, but when the date came to present to the portfolio committee, um, they weren't there. So, you know, no time needs to be wasted. The Portfolio Committee has now ordered them to come and make a presentation. The minister herself has also been kind of dodgy around answering what's happening. And I think on Wednesday, SOTA is calling in SASA to discuss another sort of uh, extension of the tender. So um, things are not looking good. And people need to, um, in a sense, start being accountable or transparent about what is happening because this really does affect people who literally need this money uh, or they will starve. Um, and so we're waiting for Wednesday to see what happens. And I think uh, opposition parties have been pushing mm. for this to um, become a major headline issue because it is, I think, extremely important. And I agree with you. I mean, just looking at the number, 17 million people. Uh, now, Marianne, you've mentioned uh, before that they, they perhaps may be some president for this and that it's, you said it's been rolled over before and timelines weren't met. So do we have an idea of what might happen if Sasa is just not ready on the day? Or is there a chance that the cards which you've mentioned to which social grants are loaded may just not function? Okay, well, it seems, you know, from a conversation that I managed to find on the Internet about uh, between CPS uh, directors and their shareholders, that they seem to sort of think that, and I'm not sure if it's been finalized, that they will hold, uh, that the cards won't expire, that they'll be asked uh, to somehow make sure that these are still valid. Mm. And I think that the, the, some of the stakeholders away from the cell and Sasa are preparing to sort of try and do damage control. But that's not good enough because these people aren't going to do us a favor. Um, all of these private companies to whom we pay money to deliver these services are going to charge us, mm. and they're going to be penalties attached. Um, so these are the these are the questions we need to ask, and we have been asking, or other media has been asking, and um, opposition parties have been asking, and we haven't had responses. I mean, you, you mentioned the role of the opposition parties, some of whom sit on the on the on the portfolio committee on social development. And how much of this do you think is is party politics and them taking a, an opportunity to to show that the ANC to not be fulfilling its sort of service delivery mandate? And how much of this is just effective institutions at work? That's what the committee is there for, and they're putting pressure where they should be, and it's just Parliament doing its job. Look, I don't think it's party politics because this is particularly a very big issue, as you can see, 17 million people. And I think in this case, uh, all of the opposition parties are unanimous in, in their uh, condemnation of the lack of transparency. The DA has been pushing it in particular, and, and the MP Bridget Masangu, who has a, a rural constituency in Brazil, and the is very tapped in on the ground 
and has been doing research around the grants. Um, so I'm, I don't think it's quite a political issue. I think it is a political issue that we as South Africans all need to do. And the, the, the committee is, is trying to get SASA um, to come and account. And so um, until they do that, we don't really know what is going on behind the scenes, apart from the fact that the service providers are bracing themselves for a rollover of a tender that has been declared unlawful. Mm. And just sticking on the, on the sort of party political note, Marianne, um, I'm curious just as to what, sort of what the ANC perspective would be on this in that, I mean, these, these are voters. These are uh, a lot of people on its voter base, a lot of people in rural areas. And I could imagine that would be absolutely disastrous if there was any delay or any issues with the issuing of social grants after April next year. So surely this would be really top priority for them ahead of the coming elections. Otherwise, getting absolutely. this wrong would just be suicide. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could be a major key uh, uh, issue for opposition parties, particularly I would imagine the EFS. And I think there are ANC members in the portfolio committee themselves who are aware and have asked uh, Sasa and, and Minister Damini to come and present. So um, it is something that um, the ANC does need to, to, to push as well uh, and to get the minister to account and Sasa to account. There are lots of irregularities around Sasa. It hasn't been without controversy. And this is an opportunity for everybody to finally sort of hold the minister and and Sasa to account. Marianne, just to sorry, uh, Marianne, um, just to change topics a little bit, Reese, uh, just just quickly. You've written quite extensively, obviously, on on the SARS wars, the supposed rogue unit, um, what's been happening to to Finance Minister Proven Gordon, and today you wrote an article about there's there's supposedly a new rogue unit or investigative unit. For those of us who have been struggling a little bit to follow the story, what is going on? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, look, it's, it's part of a much bigger state capital narrative. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that without the South African Revenue Service, the Treasury doesn't have any money. Um, and it doesn't have any money to disperse to various departments. Now, uh, a part of, the, the, uh, of capturing the state involved, of course, capturing the revenue service as well and ensuring that certain people who might be close uh, to uh, powerful political people and who uh, owe the country uh, a tax uh, because they're not paying. These are businessmen, politically connected businessmen, big tobacco, many um, people who are outside of the businesses that they do. Uh, and this happens the world over, do not want to pay the kind of tax that they need to do. And at a certain point in 2013, uh, Ivan Pillay and, and various other officials at SARS you know, began to get tough uh, and managed to, mm-hmm. to rake in billions in unpaid taxes from various people, including the Sarnies, including um, people deemed to be close to family members of President Zuma. And I think that that particular unit was getting too close for comfort and um, a way had to be found to neutralize them. And what you see now is a fallout from that. But at the same time, uh, Commissioner Moyani himself has understood that, you know, not, you know, he can't be President Zuma's gate person at SARS. He has to actually collect the revenue um, because he's going to see that they're going to fall short as much as they keep saying they're not. Uh, the collection of tax revenues depends on great investigative capacity, the gathering of evidence, um, and the ability to make sure that those tax, every, every tax agency in the world has an investigative capacity. Problem is, why would he set up something um, that seems to be exactly the same as the previous unit, which was, uh, you know, were members of which were purged and which continues to haunt uh, Pravin Gordon? And why would he staff it with somebody at the moment who is accused of having connections to the criminal underworld? So, 
really it is a much bigger picture, and it's 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 where the money is, which is why this is such a such a, a an important story as well. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's arguably the most important story in the country, and you're doing really excellent work in digging it up for us. Marianne, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks, thank okay, you. Perfect. Thanks. Um, Greg, just um, just briefly on, on this issue of, of the SARS rogue unit. I mean, we've talked before about how sometimes some of these big, important stories can get so complicated. Sometimes even I, I will be struggling to be like, wait, who's, is there a new rogue unit? Who's on this? What is the role of BAT? And I'm, I'm just wondering sort of the role as a journalist of not dumbing things down and, you know, presenting the facts as they are so the public know what's going on, but also simplifying them so somebody just gets, you know. The, the I, basics. No, I think in a story like this, it's a very difficult um, balancing act, and I haven't written very much at all about mm. this issue. Uh, it's a very difficult balancing act because there are so many, um, so many strings being pulled in different directions, so many characters involved over so many years, and. So many sort of factional fights being being played out, uh, not just factional fights, but actually fights that involve real serious money in these yeah. issues being played out through SARS, that it is, I think, extremely difficult to put across in, in a way that people will understand it. Um, I think at the same time, though, you have to – what's the point of writing if, if, if people aren't going to understand it? So you have to just, I think, make sure you just take the readers along. Um, and, and maybe build the story step by step as, as new information comes in and comes in. And then also, I think there's, with, with a story like this, there's been a couple of books, I think, at least one book, um, that's come out. I think there was one that came out, I think, last year. And I've heard it's very, very informative. So I think, I think on issues like this, the public really is, uh, starting to pick up a lot more. Absolutely. I mean, perhaps we should get the Amabungani investigative researcher guys on at some point. And I'm curious of the trade-offs they make. You know, in publishing massive details that not everybody understands, but at the same time trying to make sure the public's informed. It's pretty mm. interesting. Anyway, another big story that, that we've all been watching around the country is the is the research on on national minimum wage and, and the and the process on the country agreeing and setting uh, a sector wide national minimum wage. Um, uh, on the line, we'll be chatting to uh, Gilad Isaac, who's a researcher uh, at Corporate Strategy and Industrial Development, School of Economics and Business Science at WITS. Uh, Greg, I know this is something you've been watching. Yeah, Gilad, how are you doing? I'm okay on yourself, guys. Thanks Very for the good, thanks. It's, it's, it's great to have you back on the show because we had you once uh, once about these issues. So I remember you telling us last time you were in when we are talking about minimum wage, the real debate isn't necessarily whether we should have it or not. It's about the figure that it will be set at. And obviously we know now the advisory panel that had submitted, submitted, uh, submitted its report to Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa has come up with this figure of 3,500 rand uh, monthly, which would be the national minimum wage. And now that seems significantly higher than the sectoral agreements, um, you know, for, for things like uh, domestic work, um, and so on. But it's also below the monthly income for the, for, for a sort of working poverty line. What's your take on this proposed figure? Um, this proposed figure, I think, serves as a good starting point. It's uh, significantly higher than uh, the figures which business and others were uh, advocating. You know, I think that you're right to acknowledge that this is not a living wage. It's below the poverty measures and certainly does not offer the workers the sort of income which we think everyone in our society should earn and deserves. On the other hand, you know, it needs to be viewed in the context of what a national minimum wage is for, you know, which is to, to – to offer uh, a basic wage floor um, to uh, ensure 
uh, a basic level of income for all workers in the e e economy. Um, the other point to add is about uh, whether or not this could be seen as a starting point, you know, and we would su suggest, as we've done in our work, uh, that it could be complemented by a, a medium-term target, um, so that we're moving, you know, from at this point to say four and a half over three or five years. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing I would just add on this opening point is that you know the key recommendation is 20 rand per hour. Um, and they've then, it's been multiplied by 40 hour work week to get to this three and a half thousand rand figure. Um, but actually the, the standard procedure for a minimum wage, um, is, is to, is, is to use a 45 hour uh, work week, which many, uh, em employees, uh, work nine hours, um, every day, which then comes out to 3,900, which is a very different starting point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Were you, were you surprised when this figure of 3,500 came out? Because obviously there's a quite a, a difficult balancing act that the, that the advisory board was, was sort of looking together. It does seem higher than sort of I at least expected. Um, I think that, you know, they've done an admirable task at trying to, uh, take and synthesize the available research. Um, and I think it reflects, uh, 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 a real deep consideration of that and a, a really good uh, assessment of that uh, sort of clearly uh, seems to not buy into the type of research which we saw come out of the of the national treasury um, uh, uh, draws from the the international uh, experience um, heavily which supports the uh, uh, significant levels of minimum wages. And so, you know, whilst I was really unsure what to expect, and it depends on the, like, dynamics uh, within a panel like that uh, and the, the people appointed, um, you know, in terms of a fair assessment of the evidence, um, starting at, at, at this level or a bit higher, um, to me, uh, reflects a... a, 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 a productive interrogation of that evidence. I, I'm really glad you brought up the evidence and, and what the Treasury sort of suggested because um, the Treasury, I think they said, I think it's right, if they said uh, this sort of minimum wage could lead to over something like 700,000 job losses and a 2% drop in GDP, which would obviously be catastrophic. First of all, can you tell us why why you, at least in your modelling, shows that um, you, you believe that fig those figures are wrong? So, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm quite incredulous about this. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's shameful uh, that uh, this number is being offered in a you know, power presentation without uh, any explanation of a robust explanation of methodology, uh, of assumptions uh, made, no full paper, open to uh, scrutiny uh, and review. Um, so, you know, if this is how a leading government department thinks it's appropriate to uh, offer information to the, the public, um, I find that completely un uh, unacceptable. Um, in our own work, we've done a, a thorough evaluation of the type of statistical model 
which um, has been used by both Treasury and a research unit at UCT. Um, you know, and, and these models make various assumptions on the nature of the economy. And those assumptions, by definition, preclude any positive outcome. Um, you know, they assume that wage in, in, increases will lead to a fall in you know, employment. And, and we see this in the lowest uh, amount modeled. They, for example, um, are, are also uh, include a, a, a scenario at 1,256 rand, which is obviously um, both pitiful and well under the like current sectoral levels. And, and they show there uh, 96,000 uh, job losses. So, you know, there's a clear uh, inherent bias here. Uh, so, so maybe also, maybe it's just the economy. We're going to lose jobs regardless. Well, I mean, I think it's a reflection more of the of the of the tools used, um, which are not appropriately a, a, adapted to our to 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 our context, which do not allow for uh, a positive Im- impact mm. through in, in, increase the spending in the e- economy, and so therefore. By default, show such outcomes. Uh, this is in, in sort of stark like, contrast to the type of modeling which 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 our research project advocates uh, undertook. Yeah, just, just just take us through that a bit, because obviously you guys had quite a different take. And and tell us how your modeling shows how how a national minimum wage, and perhaps perhaps I don't know if you can just slot the figure of three thousand five hundred into your model, but mm. but how. How this might affect the economy and particularly employment. Okay, so I mean, I think the important starting point for minimum wages is to frame them around what the impact's going to be on poverty and inequality, because uh, that's their main purpose. Um, our one scenario and our model um, has both supply and demand side constraints. So. Uh, as wages go up, uh, you do see that there's increased cost for businesses and that this can have a negative impact. On, on the other hand, built into the model is also that uh, this would lead to a, a in, increases uh, in productivity, which we've seen internationally, and increases uh, in spending. And so these two forces balance uh, each other to then yield the uh, outcomes. Um, so we actually did model a fit very close to the 3.5. It was something, it was about 3.450, something like that. Um, and uh, we, um, and we showed, and we then modeled that over with, with an increase over a five year period to reach 3,900. Uh, another scenario of ours started at 4,600 and increased to 5,500 over, uh, over, over time. And what we saw there was an impact on poverty and inequality with a very slight uh, negative I- impact on employment, uh, a fall in, in about 0.2 percent in employment um, and an overall positive impact 
on economic output uh, and hence GDP growth. You know, and this is very much in line with the uh, ex post, the after if, uh, analysis of minimum wage in, uh, increases elsewhere, where sort of across the world um, we've seen a very slight or statistically uh, undetectable impact on employment, uh, a significant positive impact uh, on poverty and inequality, and um, in varying and often modest uh, yet positive impact on overall economic like growth and output. Now, now, Gillard, this this report, as I understand it, still has to go back to NEDLAC, and then ob- obviously any laws will have to be um, will have to be drafted and passed in the legislature. Now we saw this issue. There was there was a deadlock at NEDLAC, which actually led to this, if, if I'm correct, led to the to the creation of this team that that developed the report. And we also know that Parliament isn't always the most um, efficient organisation. Are you are you confident now that the process the process will run smoothly? Um, I mean, no one can be totally confident uh, of these things, and the sort of governance uh, in South Africa at the moment is not at its peak. Um, that said, you know, there's a lot of like p- political will uh, at present. Uh, it seems that the business, um, you know, wants to resolve both this and the amendments to the LRA, which is a second process going out. The LRA, like being the Labor Relations Act, um, and what's happened is that the two the processes have been tied to each other. So um, in order to achieve a resolution on the one, it appears that there's a need to uh, resolve both. You know, So there mm-hmm. is some anxiety uh, to uh, resolve that. I think there's some influence of the rating agencies, etc. I wouldn't want to speak for anyone else, but you know, this is sort of uh, educated guess. Um, and then uh, on Labour's side, there's been a, an ongoing uh, uh, push like for this. Um, and the deputy president seems very serious uh, about this. He's been um, sort of the leading like figure in terms of, of uh, on the government side. Um, at the NEDLAC summit last year, was very thoughtful and really grappled with the issues. Um, and sat next to an expert panel um, on Sunday, which announced a proposed level. So it seems like he's putting his political weight behind this also. So I, I, I don't want to read the tea leaves, um, but to me, those are encouraging signs uh, that this might be pushed through in line with the timelines which the expert panel offered, uh, which was to see uh, uh, legislation passed by uh, the middle of next year and the first level come into effect in July of 2017. Mm-hmm. Gilad, let's say that that you know this this um, by you know under a year next year we have we have this national minimum wage of three thousand five hundred being phased in um, or going through the, at least the legislative processes and eventually getting passed and becoming law and so so national minimum wage across the country would then be a minimum of three thousand five hundred a month, but. 
I think what is one of the worries then that actually employers don't actually adhere to this national minimum wage. What sort of systems do we need in place to to ensure that employers actually pay this money? Do we need do we need some sort of institution or, or, or a new role for for the Department of Labor? Uh, it's a crucial question, um, and uh, you know the expert panel does deal with this both. I think satisfactory and in ways which I would find uh, to be flagged for the further thought. Um, you, you know, one of their uh, proposals is is that there's no penalties in the first two years and instead there's a period where their businesses are assisted to adjust uh, in complying. Um, I'm a little bit cautious about this. Firstly, I think, you know, you've got to start with such a thing with a, with like a real bang. Um, and the two-year period's uh, quite a long period. Um, you know, on the other hand, having systems in place to assist businesses uh, is a positive thing. Um, so I think that needs to be really looked at. But in general, uh, you're absolutely right. We do have a dysfunctional uh, inspectorate or at least an inspectorate that's maybe a bit harsh but an, an inspectorate which uh, there's great room for improvement the inspectorate is currently housed within the department of labor but very good research coming out of uct um, shows that it is under resourced um, uh, there seems to be a uh, lack of inspectors. Uh, we should also review uh, inspect uh, the salaries earned, as they seem to be leaving for uh, other more well-paying work. There's a misallocation of inspectors with a higher ratio of inspectors per uh, employees in places like the Northwest um, and and a lower one uh, in Gauteng uh, and the Western Cape. Um, you know, there's a high number of inspections, but we don't know of, of which businesses and if there's follow-up. There's a cumbersome and lengthy process of uh, enforcement once non-compliance um, has been found. So, so we need to um, uh, improve these systems. We need to ensure that there's sticks which are in place so that fines are uh, high, that they enforce that in certain countries there's even, there's even a criminal sanctions against uh, uh, employers. And then we also need the carrots. We need uh, this number to become mm. a popular one. Uh, someone mentioned to me earlier that uh, the slogan of um, – a elephant for every hour, which is a reference to the elephant on the oh. 20 rand note, you know, and and we need to have these numbers on billboards, uh, you know, in the popular like, consciousness, and then we need systems for uh, so that like workers can go support this, that they can feel in, uh, empowered. Um, so absolutely, the the crucial next like, step, and we've just released last night a, a paper um, on this, uh, would be to analyze and uh, um, improve uh, our enforcement mechanisms. 
Ella, thank you so much for the detailed breakdown and of course for your research on this. Thanks for chatting to us. Excellent. Thanks, okay. Greg. I mean, just in in talking about this, I'm I'm always reminded by something Koketsu Moeti said on our show about I don't know a month ago, and she was saying we spend too much time on 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 the minimum wage, and it has. I mean, we've just heard all the trade-offs that have to go into it and all the shortfalls that it's not it just said it's not going to be enough for living wage for everybody right depending on where you're from how much you're spending on transport and this idea of a maximum wage um and it was i think a clever you know clever rhetoric but is it actually possible to keep talking about how much the lowest people in society earn without without actually talking about how much the highest paid earn what do you think in in the current system of yeah. of governance and economics that we have here, that's all we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Obviously, we, there will be scrutiny mm. on the top paid earners. Um, public scrutiny as opposed to sort of legal. Mm. No, I think so. And, and potentially people calling to their own morals and yeah. ethics and, and what sort of a society do we want to live in. But the fact of the matter is the way our economy is set up is that that people can earn earn high high amounts and there's no caps on that but they there are also measures to try and uplift um the people sort of on the bottom ladder uh bottom of the ladder and and try to solve these sort of demons of poverty and inequality and absolutely i mean i just really hope the, the issue of minimum wage and the issue of social grants and, and their distribution is really just remain front and center as we go into elections some of these detailed things can get lost i think this is gillard mentioned the the issue then about when I asked of, of, is he confident that this will actually be pushed forward? You know, that it won't deadlock in Nedlack, that it won't um, get caught up in a, a, a sort of a bill stage in parliament. And I think he made an important point that it has at the moment seems to have the backing of the deputy president. But an, another very important point is I think that this is a real, this was um, a manifesto a promise from the ANC. Mm. Um, the ANC committed to delivering a national minimum wage, and the ANC is currently really on the back foot in in terms of um, in terms of sort of everything. <laughs> that's right. And as as they move into 2019, I think they would very very much like this mm. um, to have this as a win in their corner. Absolutely. Now to change topic to sort of our last little segment for this hour, we're going to talk a bit about the ICC, um, the International Criminal Court. Uh, sorry for the cricket fans. Has an assembly of state parties sitting that's currently meeting at the Hague, and our very own Simon Allison is in the Hague. Uh, Simon, can you hear us? Loud and clear, Kingsley. Can okay. you hear me? Absolutely wonderfully. Simon, I'm confused. Um, over the past few weeks, we saw South Africa, Gambia, Burundi, and even Russia all threatening to withdraw or actually starting the process of withdrawing from the ICC. Why does it feel like everybody's leaving? What's going on? Well, let, let, let me start with one clarification. Uh, Russia did not actually withdraw because it cannot withdraw because it is not actually a member. Um, journalists across the world got this very badly wrong. Um, R- Russia is just playing silly PR games, um, adding its weight to the bandwagon of anti-ICC, um, to the anti-ICC campaign. Um, then we have the three African countries, Burundi, Gambia, and South Africa, who have withdrawn, but there is a year exit plan um, for that withdrawal. So they cannot just leave the court immediately. So they are still officially members. But I have to say the mood here in The Hague is pretty gloomy with um, delegates from all over the world wondering about what the court's future really is and whether it will even be around in a few years' time. Firstly, that's a massive clarification on Russia that a lot of people got wrong, that they weren't so what is the, just focusing on Russia quickly. So they, is it true that there were signatories but hadn't actually implemented the law domestically? Is that what had happened? That's pretty much what has happened. Yeah. What has happened. So 
signing an international treaty mm. is, is really not a very meaningful thing to do. You can Anyone can sign. Lots of countries have signed lots of treaties. It only becomes meaningful when that treaty is ratified by your legislation, mm. by your parliament. Um, so Russia has never ratified the ICC. It is not a member state. Um, so that signature is effectively meaningless anyway. So therefore, withdrawing that signature is, is just as meaningless legally. Politically, it's different, of course, because what it's saying to the world is that Russia does not believe in the ICC. It doesn't intend to ratify ever and will not support it behind the scenes. Um, and there's fears that other, other big powers that are not signatories, such as China and the United States, yeah. um, might follow a similar route in, in you know, because... The U.S. in particular has been quite supportive of the ICC, um, even though it is not a member. I mean, you've mentioned the gloomy mood there in the sitting that's happening right now. Is there a feeling that the, that the, the body of, of, of state parties that are signatories and that are committed to the, 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 the mandate and the progress of the ICC, does it feel that the, the, the whole, the collective has been weakened uh, due to these exits and intended exits? Look, there is no doubt that the ICC has had a bad year. Um, it is definitely in a weaker position than it was a year ago. That is particularly true on the African continent. The prognosis going forward, however, is not as um, gloomy as it might be. Um, what people are saying here is that, number one, the, with the triple withdrawals from Africa have actually strengthened the resolve of those countries that are committed to the ICC. And you've had several African countries, Nigeria and Sierra Leone in particular, arguing very strongly um, for um, the ICC to remain a, a, a crucial element of African justice. Um, these countries were staying silent before, not necessarily getting involved, but now they see the threat. They are rising to the challenge um, and, and really leaping to defend the court. That's a good sign. The other good sign is that there haven't been any more African withdrawals. So we did think, you know, that after South Africa and Gambia and Burundi, th th there may be another dozen withdrawals, um, you know, a, a mass exodus of African states. That hasn't happened. It doesn't look likely to happen either, which is good news for the court. Now, Simon, I, as I understand, you're there with a few South African journalists, right? Yes. Yes, there are, there are a couple. There's someone from the Daily Vox and someone from News 24. And, and so as I guess you're going around together or, or, or just, you know, you're speaking to people on your own at this conference, are you getting, is everyone just like, what is South Africa doing? Like, why are you doing this? You know, South Africa played a very clever game. So when Gambia and Burundi withdrew, their official reasons, their rationale was that the court is biased, it's anti-African, um, it's imperialist, that they were playing that sort of African card, that race card. Um, of course, the court has been, been accused from many quarters of being biased against um, African perpetrators of serious crime. Now, what South Africa did was, was more subtle. We made a very interesting legal argument about immunity. So we said, look, the ICC wants us to arrest heads of state like Bashir, but customary international law says heads of state get immunity. That legal contradiction mm. is so tense for us. It's causing us problems, and we're going to resolve it by withdrawing from the ICC. So really what 
South Africa has done is given the ICC a, a legal issue to address. And, mm. and that's really what's dominating conversation is, you know, should the ICC be considering some kind of immunity for heads of state or some kind of, you know, just uh, turn a blind eye while heads of state are going to fancy conferences, etc., et that kind of thing. It, it really has raised the discussion. Um, it has also raised hopes that maybe South Africa's withdrawal is not final, that maybe if the ICC can reach some kind of compromise with South Africa on this issue, um, set a new legal precedent on the subject of immunity, one that South Africa and other African states are happy with, then maybe South Africa can return to the fold. Could you could you give us some of the uh, summary of some of the arguments on this conversation about 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 sitting heads of state and 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 whether they will get immunity? What what's what's the mood or the sense of of the sitting parties as they discuss this? Well, look, it's it's uh, you know I, I think it really comes down to a, a very old argument of of peace and stability versus justice. Um, so you know, on the one hand, you you want people to be held to account for their crimes. On the other hand, you want to do as much as you can to, to stabilize the situation. And sometimes prosecuting people, especially prosecuting presidents like Bashir, might just make the situation even worse. So maybe justice should be delayed until peace and stability can be achieved. But these are big, big weighty issues. I think the consensus that I'm getting from hmm. people I've spoken to in the court and connected with the court is that they really are not prepared to fundamentally reconsider consider the immunity issue. They believe that their function is to try heads of state, um, you know, amongst other serious criminals. But of course, we know heads of state are often the people um, guilty of, of, of these these horrendous abuses. Mm. Um, and that it would be a dereliction of their duty if they were to give heads of state an immunity. So that's the, 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 the main position. But I think they are amenable to some kind of, you know, special dispensation. So, so for example, if South Africa wanted Bashir to come attend an African Union meeting mm. again, maybe they could apply for a special dispensation from the court, you know, a one-off pass, that kind of thing, in the interests of peace and, um, state and, and stability. So, you know, we're entering into a new area of law, mm. um, especially for international justice, the ICC is, is really new. You know, people forget this. It's only 15 years old. Um, these are issues that it, it has to deal with, it has to thrash out. And South Africa has kind of done it a favor um, in putting it on the table so aggressively and forcing the court to confront it because it will come up in other contexts. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I could imagine there's a worry that everybody's happy with the ICC until they're in trouble. I mean, Gambia, Burundi, Russia, and we saw the Kenya leading a charge for people to leave. Surely there's a sense that everybody's okay with things until they're the ones who are in trouble and suddenly they've got all these issues. Is that something that, that, that comes up? Are people actually accusing each other of saying, hey, you only bring this up when you're the one who's on the wrong? Absolutely. Um, there definitely is a sense that yeah. it's it's court's very convenient until all of a sudden it's not convenient. Um, and then there's a problem. You know, I I kind of feel that the court maybe overreached itself. Okay. Um, and I, I, I chatted to yesterday the, the former U.S. ambassador to the, the ICC. Um, he And what he was saying was that, you know, the lion shouldn't always go after the biggest prey straight away. Sometimes it should, you know, learn to hunt the small things, 
before it goes after the big things. Yeah. And that's what the ICC did is, is very early on, it went after Bashir, a sitting head of state, which is an extraordinary prosecution, an extraordinary investigation to mount. It was always going to be hugely controversial. Um, maybe in the interests of building up its own credibility, its own ability to deal with these kinds of issues, it should have started smaller, you know, prosecute the warlords, prosecute the rebels, get all your systems in place, figure out how to protect witnesses, figure out these issues around immunity, have that all sorted before you jump in to tackle a head of state, to tackle these issues of sovereignty. Um, maybe they went too far too fast and now they're paying the price. And I, I think another story that we can remember in that issue is the the, the damage done, at least on this continent, is uh, after ICC prosecutor Louis uh, Moreno Ocampo doggedly pursued um, Uhuru Kenyatta from Kenya. Um, but Simon, let me just take you somewhere a little, a little different for a second. One of the issues. Should I be nervous? <laughs> no, not at all. No. So, so obviously we hear very often from critics of the ICC that one of the big problems is that the superpowers who are involved in wars across the world, uh, are left untouched and never investigated. But now we know from last week, the ICC, um, a, a report that it put out said that the US Army and the CIA might be guilty of war crimes in Afghanistan and that prosecutors will d- soon decide whether they want to investigate reports that d- detainees, uh, they were tortured. Is that, is that coming up a lot in this conference? Because it seems to be a fundamental um, development for the for the sort of image and the future of the ICC. No, it is. This is this is very big. It's a big deal. Um, it is certainly on on um, uh, you know amongst the discussions, everyone's talking about it. What's very interesting is in the last strategic plan, the um, office of the prosecutor of the ICC said that they would limit themselves to one new investigation per year um which means that you know purely from from a resources point of view they don't have the investigators or the money to to open too many at the same time um and there is a consensus behind the scenes that afghanistan is going to be that one new issue this year that one new investigation now this is a big deal on several fronts number one it um implicates the us of a um, who have always been vehemently against any other courts um, having any kind of jurisdiction over their citizens. Um, in, in Japan today, at the American base there, the American soldiers are not bound by Japanese law um, due to a, a treaty signed between Japan and the U.S. because the U.S. wants exclusive control over its citizens. So the U.S. is not going to be happy that its citizens are investigated. However, the ICC does have jurisdiction because Afghanistan is a member state. And it doesn't matter where the perpetrators of these acts come from. It matters where those acts are committed. So because they were committed in Afghanistan by American forces, those American forces can be investigated and tried and potentially um, brought on trial at The Hague. I mean, that's massive. And that, I mean, you're right. That's definitely something to watch. Simon, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Okay, perfect. Uh, Greg, just as you mentioned, off air for there for a second. I think we have to be clear to people we interview. They shouldn't be in the gym while we, while we interview them, I think. Yeah, I knew we should have told Simon, you know, just to get off the treadmill before he Skypes us.
Thank you so much for everybody who listened in. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, we are committed to bring you the best news we can every week. Thanks for all the wonderful feedback from last week's show. And we, and we love getting input on, on what we get right, what we get wrong, and how we can do better. So thank you so much for tweeting us and giving us all your awesome feedback. Remember to share and uh, uh, the podcast with all your friends and family. We'll be on next week, 1 to 2 p.m., same time, same place. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.